And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave Does Podcasts, a Two True Freaks jam. I am David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. This time, it's another installment of Dave Does Trek, and in a way, it's the first official installment of the semi-ongoing series, even with two episodes under my belt. The first episode, You Can't Kill Star Trek, was kind of intended to be a one-off. I just wanted to talk about my love of Star Trek, so I gave myself a birthday gift of talking about Trek. The next was a discussion about Mego Star Trek with Dario Gonzalez, which was born from wanting to talk with Dario and talk about Mego Star Trek. I mean, pretty good equation there. And I realized in post-production that it was, to coin a phrase, logical to group those episodes under the same heading, under Dave Does Trek, and make them part of the ongoing series. So, that's how those ended up happening. As to Dave Does Trek, my original plan, and actually technically kind of my current plan, was was to cover the comics, to focus strictly on the comics featuring the original crew of the USS Enterprise in a chronological fashion on the original five-year mission. And to be honest with you, that remains the primary focus of the show. From the shakedown flight of the Enterprise to the refit, but I kind of want to open the door and keep myself a little bit loose on that end. Occasionally I want to do a random episode about Next Generation or random Trek fandom, things like that. I'm going to mix those episodes in, so be aware, but most episodes will cover a small stack of Star Trek comics and then a bit of my random fan meandering, but others will be more random installments, so it'll be a little bit of a mixed bag. Which brings us to this installment, which is admittedly an odd installment because it concerns the meandering of my brain over the last uh, 26, 27 hours or so. I had a story in my head I could not get out of it. Now, Star Trek rattling around in my brain is nothing new. There's usually something Trek going on in there, but now... Now I have a place to put these thoughts, and that place is here on this podcast and in your ear so it bounces around your brain too. And see, that's kind of where I have to confess something. For the longest time, my Star Trek fandom was one of the most consistent fandoms, but also my most hidden fandom at the same time. And the reason is, really honestly, as a teen, I wore my Star Trek love on my sleeve, sometimes literally. I mean, I was one of those guys you would see in high school wearing the next-gen com badge or the TOS command shirt. I even brought a a tricorder and some blueprints for my own starship design along with the TNG technical manual to school, so my Star Trek fandom was very clear and very noticeable. Which meant that it was a target, and I took a lot of crap for it. Mostly because I was so forthcoming and so outspoken about it. Anyone that would listen to me was bound to hear me rattle on about Star Trek. And by mid-junior year of high school, maybe a little bit earlier than that, but I distinctly remember junior year most clearly in that aspect, I got the message, and I tucked Star Trek down to myself to avoid being a target. Now sure, there were safe spaces, if you want to call them that, and I could be baited into a conversation, but not very easily, because it was just likely an excuse for some asshole to be condescending to me and turn it around on me. Let's get the nerd to talk about transporters. And really, it's extremely embarrassing to not pick up on that. And I haven't. So it was a terrible experience, and I became very self-conscious about Star Trek, especially when girls were in the equation. So my over-the-top enthusiasm faded away to quiet murmurs and internal thoughts only. But now, in the last couple of years, I've become into myself. I'm an adult. 
I have expendable income. I don't really care if somebody is condescending because I have a vehicle such as this show. And I'm part of the Two True Freaks network which has a global audience who is also into the same things that I am. And that includes Star Trek and there are those out there who actually want to hear what I have to say about Star Trek which I will never ever get used to. But at the end of the day that's some damn fine vindication if you ask me. And so, to that end, what's been on my mind lately? Well, in a word, love. In Star Trek, love comes in many forms, and this time around I'll be talking about an instance of love that could only be told in comic book form. Okay, to be more accurate, it was only told in comic book form. It's a tale of Montgomery Scott, from the mind of Peter David and the pencils of Kurt Swan, and be warned, it is one of the most moving Star Trek tales ever told. So without further delay, let's make it so. The first Dave Does Trek of 2017 commences right after this podcast promo break. Fifty years ago, Southeast Asia became a home away from home for two million Americans as they fought in the biggest, the longest, and most controversial conflict their nation had known since the war between the states. Old enough to kill, but too young to vote. This is their story. Stan Lee presents The Nom. <laughs> Join me, Tom Panneries, as I bring you an issue-by-issue look at The Nam, the Marvel Comics series that documented the lives of troops in the Vietnam War. Each episode covers one issue of the comic, as well as the history of the war, and I also take the occasional look at movies, music, television, novels, and other culture of the Vietnam War. New episodes drop every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. In the realm of Star Trek, the main relationship that the show and books, etc. have focused on, and the one that's kept most everybody's attention, is the trifecta. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, which is a solid, solid bromance. The trio was solidified by actors who were primed and perfect for their roles, not just in terms of the writing and production standpoint, but by their general personalities and acting styles. The secondary relationship, at least for me, was that of Montgomery Scott and the USS Enterprise herself. And that really is a love story for the ages. I have nothing against Uhura, Sulu, or Chekhov, but they were never at the top of my list. Uhura has a bit more of an interest for me than others, but, well, I always kind of ended up being more of a Scotty guy. Maybe that's because I'm a red shirt at heart. Command isn't my thing, I don't want that, that's too much responsibility, and science, I'm just not patient enough for. But engineering, computer hardware, security, yeah, I can see that. Command gives orders, red shirts get it done. They don't talk about it, they do it. And most of the talk regarding red shirts is how they always die, and statistically that's true. And statistically it's more likely because there are just more of them. Red shirts do a more diverse array of jobs, so it ends up being law of averages, people. To me, red shirts are the blue-collar lifeblood of the star starship in the everyman angle of Star Trek. While the bridge crew is facing Baylock or some other alien up there, the red shirts are getting stuff done, somewhat unaware of what they're in for. There is a huge sense of duty in red shirts. They're there to get work done, and they take pride in that duty, and the king of the red shirts is none other than Montgomery Scott, but you can call him Scotty. Scotty was an important character, and a red shirt of course, though the meme touting him as the only red shirt to survive the run of the series is kind of wrong, just ask Lieutenant Kyle. Scotty could have easily been billed as a fourth lead in the show. Per the command structure, and just by his general importance, and just the number of appearances and relevance he has to the show. And, you know, I'd spent a long time thinking that, fine Scotch, and the Enterprise were Scotty's only loves. 
They're good loves. Don't get me wrong. They're great things to cherish. But I was proven wrong by a comic book. And the comic we're talking is an issue that I couldn't place in my chronological timeline for reasons that will become clear as we get into the issue. But I was really anxious to share it here. And since it's been on my mind, I decided to just make a standalone episode to discuss it. So this time around, we're going to be looking at Star Trek Volume 1, Annual Number 3, published by DC Comics, and this was released on May 3rd of 1988. Peter David is the writer on a story called Retrospect, and Kurt Swan provides pencils. Yes, that Kurt Swan of Superman fame. Ricardo Villagrin is the inker, Janice Chang letters, and colors are by Michelle Wolfman. If you cannot find this individual issue knocking around in back issue bins, check it out reprinted in the Best of Star Trek trade paperback, or on the Get Corp. DVD-ROM Star Trek The Complete Comic Book Collection, which is my recommendation. It's available at a very reasonable price through Amazon.com, so you can actually use the Two True Freaks Amazon link to snatch that up. The issue itself opens on the USS Enterprise A, sometime between the end of Star Trek IV, naturally, since we're on the A, and the beginning of Star Trek V. Dr. McCoy finds Captain Kirk fencing with Sulu, and Bones explains that he is worried about Scotty, who has been depressed since getting a package while on a recent shore leave. So, Kirk joins the good doctor to visit Scotty's quarters, where they find him drunk. Scotty is a mess, scotch bottles are scattered everywhere, and the reason for the bender is a death in the family, namely Mr. Scott's wife. Kirk and McCoy are as surprised as you are to learn that Scotty was married, which apparently happened five years before the Wrath of Khan, when Scotty was an instructor at Starfleet Academy. Scotty explains that his wife, Glennis, was killed in a shuttle accident. Most of her belongings went to her sister, save a heart pendant, the kind with two halves to be worn separately. Half here, half there, you know the kind. Scotty asks to be left alone, which is a request that both Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy honor. And the chief engineer lays down on his bunk, looks at the hollow picture of her, and his memories drift back in time. The story takes us back to shortly after the events seen in Wrath of Khan, and we witness the funeral of Scotty's nephew, Peter Preston, who was killed in the battle with the Reliant. As sad as that scene is, it gets worse as Scotty's own sister, Peter's mother, blasts Mr. Scott, essentially stating that he was at fault here, that he promised to look after Peter, and he failed, and she slaps him in the face. Scotty's niece, Dana, also a Starfleet officer, straight up tells him that she will review the records of the battle, and God help him if she discovers that he could have changed the outcome. Savick, who is in attendance, assures Scotty that he did do all he could, but the grief-stricken engineer doesn't believe that, even if it's true. Scotty confides in Glennis, who is among the mourners, and tells her that he has this reputation as a miracle worker, being able to fix things and he would have given anything for that to be true when he held Peter's body on the bridge. Later, as Mr. Scott tells Glennis about his intentions to steal the Enterprise and return to the Genesis planet, Glennis reveals that she won't be there when he gets back. Even though he's made a good run at staying earthbound, his mind and his heart are in the stars, and he belongs there, so she will not renew their marriage license when it expires. The couple accept their fate, they share a shot of scotch apiece, and share a last dance, not realizing, of course, that this really is a last dance. The story then jumps back 11 years, where Mr. Scott visits his sister and young Peter and Dana as the refit to the Enterprise is commencing. His sister reveals that Glynis is around town and that her husband, Angus, walked out on her, which means that she is available. So Scotty goes to find her at the seaside, where she is painting. Scotty reminds Glynis that he told her that Angus would leave her for a girl half her age, but he doesn't gloat. Instead, he proposes marriage to Glynis. Glynis declines the proposal, but she gives Scotty the painting that she was working on and tells him to think of her on his next five-year mission and try the proposal again at the end of that. Scotty asks her if she'll wait five years for him, and she says, anything for you, my love. 
love, Glennis asks Scotty to grow back his mustache, and he also says, anything for you, my love. The story then goes further back in time to the days of the Enterprise's first five-year mission, and a shore leave that gets off to an interesting start as young Scotty sees young Glennis, and they both kiss passionately. But Glennis's husband, Angus, sees the passionate lip lock, and he takes a little bit of offense. And this begins a knockdown, drag-out fight that's only stopped when Glennis reveals her marriage to Scotty. Heartbroken and not just a little bit confused, Scotty storms off even as Glennis calls out behind him and Captain Kirk watches with confusion over what the heck just happened. Later as Scotty and Captain Kirk are talking, with Kirk gently reprimanding him, Scotty hears Glennis scream and storms into the house, kicking the door in. Which is awkward because Scotty and Kirk find that Glennis and Angus were being intimate, if you know what I mean, and she is, in her own words, very enthusiastic. Angus taunts Scotty, letting him know that Glennis never ever thinks of him, but Scotty spies the half-heart pendant around her neck and makes eye contact with Glennis, and something non-verbal passes between them, an understanding of sorts. We then go further back in time to a younger Glennis and Scotty, just before Scotty goes to Starfleet, with Glennis taking the hollow picture of herself, which Scotty is looking at at the beginning of the tale. And this is where Scotty realizes that he's been accepted to Starfleet Academy. Glennis takes this as a bit of a slight, since she's apparently not enough for Scotty, but she recognizes what they have isn't forever. And with only a few days left together, they soak it up, and Glennis and Scotty share a dance. And then it's a trip back to Scotty's teenage years where he gets ditched by a girl named Dory for Angus, who she's going to the county fair with, and Scotty is stuck with a 13-year-old Glennis, which is embarrassing for a 15-year-old. Glennis and Scotty go to the fair. They have a great time. They win a trophy for best dancing. Lo and behold, this is where Glennis gives Scotty half of her heart medallion, which gets more poignant as we go eight years earlier, where a young Angus knocks Glennis off of a hover bike, and Scotty stands up for the girl chasing Angus off. Glennis clutches her heart medallion around her neck and promises that that she will love Montgomery Scott forever. And the issue closes out on the image of the heart medallion, combined again for the first time. And here I am in a glass case of emotion, people. What a heartbreaking story, truly, truly pulling from the core of the human experience and producing real tears. And let's look at this. I mean, the Enterprise isn't in danger in this story. We don't have the menace of Klingons or Romulans, and not a single phaser or photon torpedo is fired. Captain Kirk is barely in the issue, and yet, this is one of the most memorable and truly moving issues of Star Trek in my mind. It stays with the reader on an emotional level. Because of the sliding timescale, it was hard to place in a chronological coverage, but I'm glad I found it here because it works. It's a one-off, and that's fine because I can really spotlight this one issue. Let me say that the cover, which shows Scotty and Glennis kissing with various scenes such as Peter's funeral and them as a young couple running, it's sweet at first, and then really bittersweet once you know the context. And there's a trade dress along the top of the cover with the letters of the word annual spelled out in individual slanted boxes. And that was on all the DC annuals that year, so being the fan that I am, I associate it with Superman. And that's appropriate because, you know, if we're speaking of associations with Superman, we have Kurt Swan one of the Man of Steel's most prolific and well-known artists doing art chores here. Swan is no stranger to Star Trek. He'll do another annual in the second volume of DC's Star Trek series, but here he's a lot less distracting. Being a Superman fan, or, you know, if you're really just a fan of comic books, Swan's modeling of Superman is pretty distinct. You know you're looking at Kurt Swan immediately. And that means that sometimes when Swan is working on other properties, it feels like reading a Silver Age Superman tale at times. You're waiting for Perry White to show up on the bridge of the Enterprise. But here, Swan is employing a slightly different style. Some of these Swanisms, such as puffy cheeks, no uh, notable mouth muscles, they're very relaxed. He keeps the characters on model. Exceptionally so, actually, especially if we're going through various eras. The one exception, and the appropriate exception, is Glennis herself, who is reminiscent of Lana Lang. I do want to 
clarify the word reminiscent. It's not overt. It's not a completely modeled after Lana Lang, but it reminds me a lot of his Lana. But since Glynis is a totally new character, it continues the trend of not being distracting. It's an afterthought, and it allows her to embed into the story completely. Now, one of the things that drew me to this issue is the fact that it eschews the normal Kirk, Spock, and McCoy focus and looks at Scotty. I mean, how often does Scotty get a comic book cover to himself? And he's kissing a girl? Well, that begs to be opened up. Another thing that drew me to the issue is Peter David, whom I'm on record as being a fan of. Notably, I did a show called Pad Smash, which focused on his Hulk run, so I have an investment in Peter David. The thing is, Peter David's Star Trek work, especially his comics to me, are really, really good. He knows his Trek lore, especially tiny, minute details which he puts on display here. Am I biased to liking Peter David comics? Well, I'm more inclined to give his comics a chance since he's proven himself to be reliable in the past, but I wouldn't give him a free pass. And while this is Scotty's issue, it opens with a typical Kirk scene. Kirk is fencing with Sulu and nearly takes off Bone's head when a foil goes flying, and Kirk makes a joke about once saying that, well, risk is our business. I see what he did there. It's cute. And one of the two callbacks to the original series we get in this issue the other coming after Scotty's fight with Angus. That's where Kirk mentions that Scotty's been a bit odd since being hit by a lightning from a Greek god, which places that particular scene on a shore leave shortly after Who Mourns for Adonais. But Kirk and McCoy are only here for exposition and framing purposes. This is Scotty's show, and Scotty likes him some scotch. When are you going to get off that milk diet, lad? This is vodka. Where I come from, that's soda pop. Well, this is a drink for a man. <laughs> scotch? Aye. It was invented by a little old lady from Leningrad. However, here it's a little over the top. Scotty is clearly hurting. And why would he not be hurting, let's be honest? And there's something charming about Scotty having this small wooden box. It's his keepsake box. And there's not much to it. It's got a, a few mission patches, some commendation medals, and then the hollow photo of Glennis. And I want to key in on something. He doesn't refer to her as an ex-wife. He refers to her as his wife. And maybe Scotty doesn't care about the ending of the marriage at a technical level because he still knows how he feels and that is an unending love but on the other hand maybe this is a matter of time he hasn't fully processed the end of the marriage and i really have to point this out not all that much time has passed since the scene where they dance in the breakup to where we're at here the breakup happened right before the events of star trek 3 actually kind of during star trek 3 and if you look at it star trek 4 picked up three months later on vulcan so we're maybe six months removed from the last time scotty saw her right in there it's a little i don't know odd sad maybe i'm not sure what the right word would be it's it's telling to me and it stands out that neither kirk nor mccoy knew scotty was married Maybe they never bothered to ask, thought it was prying, what have you. Kirk knows all about McCoy's divorce. He certainly knows about Spock's complicated situation with T'Pring, but what does he know about Scotty or Sulu or Chekhov? On the other hand, I mean, really to look at it, to some extent, these are people performing a job. Any friendships are a bit of a bonus when they do happen, so it's not outside the realm of possibility that personal lives may not come up all that often. People may want to keep it private. They're here to do a duty. Despite that, Kirk and Bones are there to offer moral support. They care, but they also have a duty to their fellow crewmen, and they're there to do so. Despite not knowing his past, his marriage, they're here for Scotty now, which is kind of the important part. And Kirk mentions remembering Glennis from the incident during the five-year mission when she was enthusiastic, but that turns into a punchline when he says he has a good memory for women. Yes, Kirk got some booty on the show. He had swagger, but I really wish writers and fans alike could move past the jokes. There is a lot more to the character of Jim Kirk, but that's a subject for another time, certainly. Apparently there's more to 
Scotty than his crewmates see, but in all honesty, I think that comes down to Scotty's love of his duty. While he loves the Enterprise, it's the purpose that she provides that he loves. Scotty comes to work and he's on the job. He's all about enjoying himself on shore leave and certainly he'll kick back off duty, but when he clocks in, it's all work, no play. It's definitely one of the best qualities of Scotty. He has a job, he'll get it done quickly, efficiently, and in a way that nobody else could do it. But I'm digressing here. Kirk and McCoy leave Scotty. We take a trip back in time. And seriously, this story probably would not have worked as well with a standard flashback and move-forward format. From here, the scene in the present ends with a shot of the heart pendant, both halves combined here, in Scotty's hand, which will connect perfectly to the end of the issue with the pendant in young Glennis's hand. And I take that as a circle of life symbol. Intended or not, that's how I see it. The love begins with Glennis saying that she will love Scotty forever, and ends with Scotty saying it to her across time, space, and the veil of life. It would be extremely melodramatic if the story was told chronologically, but by going backwards in its memento style, it kills. It forces the reader to connect the dots, forcing them to go through an emotional journey backwards. And for those that want to be pedantic, yes, I know Memento was released long after this issue, but Christopher Nolan clearly stole the idea for that movie from Peter David. I will add that the reverse order of scenes also allows the issue to tie into the series as it was at that time. The first two annuals told tales at the beginning and ending of the original five-year mission, respectively, but this starts with what was then the present. And I am going to register one major complaint. Glennis is given the last name of Campbell. At one point, she's even referred to as Glenn Campbell. Suddenly, Rhinestone Cowboy is stuck in my head, and I don't know if Peter David was trying to make a joke here. But it definitely stood out to me and kind of threw me out of the story just a little bit. Now, in terms of the present, Scotty and crew have been aboard the Enterprise A for what I think is a relatively short period of time, following a three-month exile on Vulcan, which happened because of the events in the search for Spock. Because of that, a lot of this is fairly fresh, and there has to be just a little bit of a what-if in Scotty's head. What if he had stayed on Earth? What if he had stayed with her? and renewed their marriage license, which is more like a driver's license, which I think is completely odd, but maybe for the better, definitely would reduce the divorce rate. But would she still be there? He doesn't blame her. I want to point that out. He doesn't blame her. He doesn't slight her. How could he, though? Realistically, it would be a lot to ask for her to follow through on somebody who's going on five-year missions. It takes a certain mindset to be a Starfleet spouse at this time, just like any military family in the real world. There's a lot of distance. There's a lot of time that you're separated. But regret and what-ifs are really strong themes to play with and they can be overdone that's for sure but here peter david manages to intertwine the regret theme with a tangible part of trek canon it's added to what we see with peter preston and for those that have only seen the normal theatrical cut of the wrath of khan you may be wondering what the heck's going on here and that's because the scenes where scotty announces peter as his nephew kind of ended up on the cutting room floor it was reinstated in the director's cut and it would play on the actual network airings of the movie but in the regular theatrical cut no mention but there is a scene where he introduces him to Captain Kirk proudly, letting him know this is his nephew, which adds just a punch to the gut to the scene later where he comes on board with the dying Peter Preston saying, oh, he stated his post, he stated his post. Scenes with Dana and her rank, as well as Peter's mentor-teacher relationship with Savick, only appeared in the novelization, fleshing him out. Peter David pulls all of that into the story to great effect. Again, Peter David knows his Trek lore, and not only brings in portions that would have only aired on network TV versions of The Wrath of Khan, but those in a novelization. And then he weaponizes them for a brutal attack on our emotions. You may remember the scene of Peter's death. Kirk comes in to sick bay, says the word is given, and gets Peter's blood on his uniform. Is the word given, Admiral? The word is given. Warp speed. I. Kirk, 
stayed at his post when the trainees ran. I'm sorry, Scotty. Well, the blood is metaphorically on Scotty's hands. Preston's funeral reminds us that, you know, Spock wasn't the only death in Star Trek II. It's the one that got the most attention, but it's not the only casualty to that battle. Peter David takes the emotional impact of Spock and Peter's deaths and the aftermath of Rathacon all together and then kicks the reader in the emotional jaw with the funeral scene. Scotty's sister and his niece turning on him and blaming him is, well, it just accelerates the thoughts that are already in Scotty's mind. Of course, Scotty blames himself. He was watching out for Peter and the mission in Star Trek II was supposed supposed to be a training mission. Nobody was supposed to be in the line of fire. More commendable is the fact that Scotty doesn't shift the blame. It would be very easy to blame James Kirk for these events in Wrath of Khan. Kirk's command, Kirk's nemesis, Kirk's choices all coming back to haunt him. And Peter Preston is a casualty of that. Kirk sings the praises of his friend Spock, but simply says goodbye to Preston. The irony being that Preston stated his station as ordered, and Spock abandoned his post, leading to their respective deaths. But no, Scotty takes this one and it will haunt him for the rest of his career, and his life, really. Scotty takes those in his charge seriously, family or not. He's extremely protective of the people under his command. For Scotty, it is to do the job, do it right, and do it safely. And that's even an aspect that's echoed on the Next Generation episode, Relics, where Scotty blames himself for the death of another officer, even though neither would have survived without Scotty's ingenuity. In reality, Kirk was actually right to invoke the idea that risk is their business. It's actually accidentally a theme to the story. You're on a ship that charts the unknown. You're bound to run into aliens shooting at you. Or, you know, not to mention the the general rigors of deep space. Peter Preston died doing his job, and doing it in a fashion that I could see Scotty himself losing his life doing. It was pure service ethic and there was nothing Scotty could be doing that would change that outcome. But now Peter's gone. Scotty's sister and niece have turned on him. Scotty's got to make this choice and it's a choice he's betting will cost his marriage to Glennis. He knows what's at stake. At least with Glennis and everything that happens there, the end of the relationship, it's one of the most congenial endings of all time. No fighting, no yelling, just the dance of two adults facing reality. Maybe these two are hoping that things line up again. Glennis waited five years for him to propose again and she wore, you know, wore that pendant for who knows how long, even while she was married to Angus. And maybe the stars would line up again. Now they won't. It'd be very tempting to use the term star-crossed lovers here, but I hate that term. And just as an aside, the reason I hate that term is there are actually many, way, way too many, actually, people who believe that Romeo and Juliet is a romance. No, Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy which resulted in the deaths of many people. Because the term Starcross stemmed from Romeo and Juliet, it, I always associate it with inevitable tragedy, but Scotty and Glennis are not Starcrossed. They're out of sync in terms of time, but not Starcrossed. Scotty is constantly leaving her because of his duty to the Enterprise, his other love. And to be clear, it's not just the ship that takes him from her, it's his purpose. He's needed on that ship. Nobody else can do what he does. So when he's leaving her, he's leaving her for his higher calling, his craft, his destiny. But when he leaves her, it's always with a dance. So why would Scotty leave his wife? Why would this happen in, you know, the events in Search for Spock? Well, let me answer to that. His nephew is dead. His sister and niece have turned their backs on him. So his family is is gone. And his other family, the Enterprise crew, they're about to do something bold and, to be honest, quite stupid for the basically to watch out for one of their own. So for Scotty, it makes sense to be of service to the family members that he has left. Otherwise, they wouldn't make it out of space dock because who else is going to sabotage the Excelsior? 
Excelsior. And probably the best part, and the most poignant part at least, is that the dance matches up to when Scotty left for Starfleet Academy. Peter David perfectly keeps that synchronicity in place. And in that scene, the statue he and Glennis won from their first date is present. It it simply echoes. The story keeps its emotional core intact. Scotty is willing to fight for Glennis. He's willing to wait for her, and she returns the favor. Their love story is one of patience and to some extent certainty. At five years old, Glennis declares that she will love Montgomery Scott forever. At 13, she tells him and gives him half of the pendant. As a married adult, she wears the pendant and finally the marriage is able to begin and it's able to end with the same certainty. Look, neither Scotty nor Glennis doubt how they feel about one another. That's never changed. That never will change. They know where they stand in terms of how they feel, but they both know that their directions are different. They accept it and they understand and deep down they know that this is a dance that would go on as long as both of them live. Well, now Scotty is alive and she isn't. That cycle ends and the twist of the knife is the episode Relics. Scotty lives well beyond his years in the 24th century and he has to do it without her. The crew of the Enterprise have explored galaxies, alien entities, time travel, who knows what. Sometimes they forget to explore the man or woman next to them, which sounds a little odd, but you know what I mean. What stories can those people tell? What can they learn from one another? Jim Kirk and Leonard McCoy had no idea that Scotty was married that this epic love story is playing out over the decades, nobody knew that. I mean, this is the notebook before Nicholas Sparks put pen to page. Peter David should sue somebody. Heads should be rolling. Now to bring it back in all seriousness, this is a tale well told. It's extremely emotional, the backwards framework allows the focus to remain in the correct spot consistently, and the issue would not have worked as well with Chekhov or Sulu, maybe Uhura. Because of the everyman aspect, this is a more relatable and sympathetic selection. Much like Captain Kirk, Scotty has suffered losses. Kirk lost Edith Keeler and David Marcus, Scotty lost Peter Preston and Glennis Campbell. The difference is how these two deal with it, and the focus usually being on James Kirk versus Montgomery Scott. Scotty drowns his sorrows, has a good cry, and then gets back to work. Scotty is a duty-oriented officer who loves what he does and he's good at it. He loves his ship and she'll pull him through because she always has in the past. And you know, I gotta be honest, the cherry on top is the childhood scenes. It's great to see the eras that we know, the pajama uniform era of Star Trek The Motion Picture and of course the five-year mission era, but to see Scotty preparing to leave for Starfleet Academy is a real treat. And David makes sure that this scene has some relevance, tying it into the theme of Scotty leaving Linus. The country fair scene really stuck it to me. The idea that Scotty had been coming in second to Angus his whole life, at least in the field of love, and that Glennis wasn't his first choice. Sure, we know that she set her sights on him from five years old, but Scotty thought that she was too young. She's, you know, just a kid. Ew. It's even cuter that she keeps calling him Monty, which he rebuffs until, at the end, he insists that she call him Monty. It borders on too sweet, and it makes me think of a country song. Yes, it's just like Tim McGraw's Don't Take the Girl. I mean, a lot like that. I mean, Peter David should probably be talking to his lawyer right about now and putting his sights on Tim McGraw, Christopher Nolan, and Nicholas Sparks. If we're being honest, though, this story should not work. Not at all. It's too sweet. A tale of childhood love belongs in Anne of Green Gables, not Star Trek. Yet here we are, a story that has next to nothing to do with exploring space, seeking out new life forms or civilization, and it's good Star Trek. The first time I read this story, I wept. I'm, I'm not kidding, I'm not making a joke. I had tears in my eyes. I wasn't expecting it, and I wasn't prepared for it at all. Now my heart aches for Scotty and the what-ifs that would plague him if he didn't know, as Glynis knew, that he belonged in that engine room. It's his first best destiny. Still 
still there are those around us that have stories and lies to tell us about. The ones we love can be taken from us at any moment, and that's a very real emotion. Much like the galaxies that Star Trek looks at, the people aboard the ship can be just as interesting. And this story is just a good example. There are worthy lessons in simple human tales, even when they're set in the 23rd century. Maybe the best lesson here is to always take a moment to dance. And that's going to wrap up another installment of Dave Does Trek, an ongoing segment of Dave Does Podcasts, presented by Two True Freaks. Take a moment to visit 2TrueFreaks.com to take a look at back episodes of this show and all of the great podcasting content at Demonza Core. Also, if you're inclined, leave an iTunes review to help the show get noticed, like the Facebook page, which is at Facebook.com slash DaveDoesPodcasts. And if you want to drop the show an email, the address is DaveDoesPodcasts at gmail.com. Until next time, I am David Weeder. Thank you for taking time to listen to me talk Star Trek. See the pyramids along the Watch the sunrise from a tropic island. Just remember, darling, all the while you belong to me. See the marketplace in old Algiers. Send me photographs and souvenirs. Just remember when. Dave Does Podcasts is a Two True Freaks production and is made for entertainment purposes only. The show does not draw profit from the characters or concepts discussed. All opinions are those of the host and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. The copyrights for any music or sound clips lie with the copyright holders. They are used for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended, as this show most certainly does not draw revenue. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.